This episode of the podcast is brought to you by FitBod, the best fitness app on the market. Its genius algorithm will generate personalized workouts based on your fitness goals, available gym equipment, duration, fatigue levels, and many more factors. It allows you to track your progress and upload data to other apps such as Apple Health and Strava. FitBot also works without any gym equipment as it will provide you with bodyweight workouts as well. FitBot is giving you a free trial as well as 25% off its membership when you sign up at app.fitbod.me slash Bananiac. That's app.fitbod.me slash B-A-N-A-N-I-A-C. Get the app and get stronger faster with FitBod. So today I want to share with you guys an older episode. This is an interview I did back in 2014 with Dr. John McDougall. He's a medical doctor based in California. He's the author of The Starch Solution. I'm sure many of you guys might have heard of him, but if you haven't, he is all about the starches, rice, corn, potatoes, beans, peas, lentils, Starches, they're low fat, they provide you with energy, because they're going to be the center of your diet. That's his philosophy. And it's someone who inspired me uh, very early on in my career. Um, I did this interview back in 2014, and uh, we talked about a lot of great stuff regarding nutrition and health. This is someone that I've looked up to for many years. I thought you guys might enjoy listening to this interview. I never shared the full interview on my Bananiac channel or this podcast. I did upload it to a second YouTube channel that I ran for a couple years called Symposium Films, but I thought I would share with you guys here, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. But before we head into the interview, I just want to say happy holidays. I know we're in mid-December, so a little bit left to go. This roller coaster of a year is almost over. <laughs> Hopefully, 2021 is much more exciting and uh, brings much happier experiences to all of us. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes. I realize that they haven't been as consistent as in the past, but I'm really juggling a lot at the moment. And uh, if you guys want to learn more about what I'm up to, head to my YouTube channel, Bananiac. But if you guys are enjoying this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would just share it with someone that could benefit from it and give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the podcast out. It would help get it in front of more eyeballs and ears. And honestly, I just, I want people to really get something out of this. I want them to benefit their health, you know, hopefully inspire them to change their diet uh, and adopt a plant-based diet. So if you guys could share it, give it a five-star rating, it would mean a lot. All right, that's enough talking from me. Here is Dr. John McDougall. Special guest, the author of The Starch Solution, Dr. John McDougall. Thank you for, so much for joining us today. It's nice to be back. So I have a good list of questions here for you. And I wanted to start with, you, you promote a starch-based diet, which is obviously high in carbohydrates. Um, I was wondering, where did this whole notion that carbs make it fat and you should stay away from starches originate from? I think it, uh, it. I think it has some industrial connection. Uh, I'd have to be uh, embellishing the story a little bit, but I'm certain if I could get into the details, it would be well established. 
Uh, back in 1977, we had the uh, dietary goals of the U.S. established by George McGovern, a senator, Democratic senator from South Dakota. And uh, <clears throat> when they wrote those dietary goals, they were going to uh, uh, try and improve the health of Americans by fixing their diet, specifically by cutting down on the animal food intake which had been identified by Mark Hagstead, other experts, as causing heart disease, many of our common forms of cancer, obesity, and so on. So there was a, a direct attack against the meat, dairy, egg, and other animal food industries, <clears throat> amongst other parts of the food industry. But that was one of the most important parts. And the meat and the dairy lobbyists, uh, their political connections, stood up and uh, stopped the dietary goals for the U.S. Uh, by the end of 1977. They were essentially abolished within a year, uh, changed completely to favor the uh, meat and dairy industry. In the process, uh, the industries learned how to control terminology, words. And one of the words that became associated at that time with uh, obesity, fatness, unhealthiness was the word starch. Prior to that, uh, experts used to talk about starch, homemakers, grandmas, mothers, and so on, used to talk about the starchy part of their diet as an energy part, as the central part of the meal plan. After that, starch became vilified. I would have to look up all the details on how and why, but the net effect is people no longer had a reliable, time-honored source of calories when you equate starch, beans, peas, lentils, rice, bread, etc., with something evil. And so starch became an evil word, and industry made a major, con major contribution there. Just like industry, when they have guidelines for Americans created, say, through the United States Department of Agriculture, every five years the USDA puts out uh, uh, guidelines for Americans to be healthier, and in the process of writing those guidelines, industry, which is involved directly with the USDA, industry insists that the verbiage in uh, these particular guidelines not identify meat, dairy, and eggs as being bad. When they refer to unhealthy things in relation to meat, dairy, and eggs, they say saturated fat. Saturated fat is bad for you. Well, the consumer, again, doesn't know how to act because they don't know what a saturated fat looks like, but saturated fat is meat, dairy, and eggs. Rather, if they'd say in these uh, particular guidelines, uh, if you eat meat, dairy, and eggs, you'll get heart disease, strokes, uh, et cetera, that would be much more damning for industry. So industry has controlled terminology. Uh, they have done it actively and passively. The other thing that happened that contributed to this is the, uh, the popularity of low-carb diets like the Atkins diet. Uh, these low-carb diets, which again began in the 70s with Robert Atkins, I believe his first book was 1972, uh, they showed Americans, not a new idea, these kind of diets have been around for at least 100 years prior to Atkins, they showed Americans that if you made yourself sick enough, and I do mean sick enough, uh, by eating such a bizarre meal plan, as a all meat, dairy, egg meal plan with no carbohydrates that you would lose weight because you became sick. Uh, the part of that manifestation of sickness is ketosis. You go into ketosis, you lose your appetite uh, because of this illness, and I gotta emphasize illness, because of this illness, it's not a blissful state of ketosis as the uh, promoters say. Because of this illness, uh, you can't eat and you lose weight. 
Well, you go out of the state of illness, ketosis, if you just eat a small amount of starch, carbohydrate, starch, that's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, you ruin ketosis, so you ruin the Atkins diet. I think that's part of the reason, too. But for whatever reason, in the U.S. and in several other countries, starch is equated with uh, laundry detergent or laundry stiffening products. Uh, it's associated, once you get into the food category, with white bread, glop, you know, cookie dough. Uh, and then the, uh, the ultimate defaming of starch, incorrectly, falsehood, about starch is you can't eat starch because starch makes you fat. And every listener can figure that out if they just stop for a minute and they think of starch eating populations. For example, the Asians. You pick any of the Asian populations like where we have Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand and China and Japan. You pick any of these populations and when they were still rice eaters, 90% of their diet came from rice back before the 1980s. There were no fat people. I mean, you could look at a, at a, a village of 100,000 people and there's not a fat person in the village. Now, of course, in China and Japan and other Asian countries, they've abandoned their starch rice-based diet and picked up the American fare, and they look like it. I mean, they're fat, greasy, and bald, just like uh, just like Americans have been for 70, 80, 90 years. But that that modernization took place in Asia over the last 30 years, so people can still see it. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of uh, industry has played a big role in that. And it's amazing how you've even said this before, that people have lived on starch for thousands of years. And now it's only been a short amount of time that people have sort of neglected that. Well, it's in the U.S. too. They tell me in German, in the German language, starch means strength. So it's, it's, a, it's a word association that has occurred in some of our industrialized countries and not others. And as I do say, definitely industry has profited, the meat, dairy, and egg industry. And they did have an active role in changing everything back in 1977 when the McGovern report came out and they fought it for a year. It was published in February 77. By the end of the year, meat, dairy, and eggs with their lobbyists, their political connections had completely changed the goals and ruined any opportunity of helping Americans, individuals as well as our nation, as did Luther Terry, who was our Surgeon General back in 1964 when he published the uh, Surgeon General's report on smoking and health. He changed America. Uh, he changed, uh, well, primarily America, and it, it has, uh, has also spread over into Europe now and maybe into Asia and Africa soon that smoking it will kill you. It's a bad habit. Well, Luther Terry introduced that in 1964. McGovern and his group tried to do the same thing with food that they did with smoking in 1977. And C. Everett Koop tried to do the same thing again with the Surgeon General's report on nutrition and health in 1985. And each time industry has come back with new resolve, new strength, new determination. And this isn't just going to happen to us. Uh, it's not going to happen to big food like it happened to big tobacco and big alcohol. Uh, and the reason is, I mean, part of the reason, well, part of the reason is the economic strength of the food industry compared to alcohol and tobacco. They're hugely larger business businesses and also the public consumption. Uh, I would say oh, nine out of 10 people can understand that alcohol abuse is a killer. Uh, it results in, uh, in family violence. It results in auto accidents. And so nine out of 10 people are uh, sane when it comes to looking at that problem. The hardcore drunks can't see a problem. 
And likewise, with cigarette smoking in the 1980s and 70s, half the population didn't smoke. So half could see the insanity of smoking. So we had a chance. Now, the problem today with the food industry is that 99, well, maybe not, maybe it's down to 97%. 97% of the consumers uh, are facing meat, dairy, and eggs every day, every meal, every plate, every bite, and they can't see the insanity. It's only the small percentage of us, let's guess 3%, who switched over to vegetarian diets who can see this insanity like a non-smoker or a non-alcoholic could see the other problems. So it continues uh, because of the economic issues and because the consumer knows no better. They just accept sickness as part of a way of life. Right. And uh, we have established that a starch-based diet, it should be recommended to the public for ideal health. I'm really wondering though, um, does this apply to all life stages, would you recommend, like say, for instance, children or the elderly population? Well, children are designed to live on human breast milk. So their diet is 50% fat. <clears throat> By design, this is a special time in a mammal's life uh, when they're exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life. And then at six months, children develop teeth, no coincidence. And they also develop uh, the coordination to reach out and grasp whatever mother has in her hand. And at that time, whatever mother has in her hand, the child will grasp. Meat would be pretty hard for a young child to swallow, but they would do just fine on cooked cook food. The human diet is cooked food, like cooked potatoes, cooked mashed corn, breads. Uh, these are natural things for kids to eat. Now, kids don't eat many vegetables, green and yellow vegetables, because they're kind of a bitter taste. Uh, they're not very calorie-giving. So if you're starting to think of vegetable foods in terms of kale and broccoli and cauliflower, you're not going to win much favor with your children. They will go for fruits. Fruits are sweet-tasting. So you should be feeding children uh, starches and fruits and maybe a little vegetable matter after six months of age. And, yes, elderly, definitely elderly uh, should be eating this kind of diet. I just read an article about the oldest man in the world. He's a Brazilian, whether it's true or not. He's said to be 126 years old. And one of the comments he made in the article is he never misses his beans and rice. You know, yeah, old people need to eat this way too. I mean, people eat this way because this is people's diets. It's just like horses have a diet. And, uh, uh, tigers have a diet and uh, you know every, every animal has a diet and this diet is pretty much established after the weaning period in mammals and it always continues well whales have diets you know they just they you don't because you get to be in your last part of your life cycle in any mammal you don't switch to another mammal's kind of food elephants don't switch to meat you know cats don't switch to grass uh, just because they get older. So the human diet is a starch-based diet with fruits and vegetables and uh, a little meat. I don't know. Uh, I don't recommend a little meat. Would a little meat make things better in the human diet? I think that's up for debate, uh, but I don't recommend it because my patients can't eat a little meat. I see no reason why a little meat or a little dairy would enhance the diet other than it's just a, a nugget of calories and sometimes people need more calories. The meat and dairy today are quite risky compared to what they used to be. They're highly infected with various kinds of cancer-causing viruses, leukemia viruses, uh, 
loaded with uh, other kinds of microbes as well as uh, just filthy, dirty with people poisoning environmental chemicals. So, you know, when somebody says, well, how about a little uh, dairy for my, my baby? <clears throat> well, that dairy is likely infected with bovine leukemia virus. I mean, how many bovine leukemia viruses do you need to give a child? It doesn't sound like any. Uh, likewise, your fish is so loaded with methylmercury, just a few pieces of fish is declared a health hazard by the FDA and the EPA. So, I mean, how much poisonous methylmercury do you feed to your kids? Uh, it is a, because of this, because there is so much contamination and so little obvious need for these animal foods and people's natural behavior mostly, that I just say don't go there. Uh, you know, just plain and simple don't cross that line. It's much easier for you if you say, you know, I'm not going to smoke or I'm going to smoke. I'm not going to drink that bottle of whiskey or I'm going to drink that bottle of whiskey. I'm not going to eat meat, dairy, and eggs. I'm going to eat rice, corn, and potatoes. It's just easier for people's behaviors. That's why I teach it, and uh, that's how people learn it. Unfortunately, it has to be an all-or-nothing thing for these food addicts, us food addicts. Uh, it's just too hard to take a little bit. Yeah, most people, from my experience, can't handle just a little bit because all this food is so stimulating. It it really makes you want to eat more. So I think the all or none approach in this case works so much better. I could get back into pepperoni pizza so fast. <laughs> you know, it's just pepperoni pizza was probably the last thing that I was able to uh, stop because it was so, just like you say, so stimulating. Uh, the salt and the spices and probably the grease, uh, you know, it was, and the carbohydrate and the pizza crust and the, you know, the sugar and all the stuff. It was, uh, I'm, I'm sure if I thought about it for a little bit, I would salivate even over pepperoni pizza all these days. Yeah, they build the food to make it hard to resist, just like heroin's hard to resist once you get into it. Uh, you just have to say no if you want your health back. This is, as uh, you've probably heard me say if you've been watching my work lately, as I get older, I get simpler in my thinking. Maybe it's loss of brain cells. I don't know. Or I think as people get older, things become clearer. And uh, I've been discussing lately about all I've been talking about is food poisoning. Uh, plain and simple, we're suffering from food poisoning. It's just like if you uh, consumed lead, uh, you'd get lead poisoning. And if you consumed uh, listeria, you'd get a foodborne illness, food poisoning from this bacteria. Uh, we're suffering from food poisoning that's of far, far greater importance to the individual, to the nation, to the world than any lead poisoning or listeria poisoning. The food poisoning problem we're talking about from animal foods and oils, primarily vegetable oils, that kind of food poisoning has done more devastation to individuals, uh, to their families, to the economy of their families, uh, you know, husbands, wives, children, and so on in terms of constipation, obesity, greasy skin, heart attacks, breast cancer, colon cancer. I mean, it's just devastated. You don't, you don't know a person, not one of your listeners, um, is limited enough in their life that they don't know a person with probably every single disease I mentioned. So these are uh, epidemic diseases in individuals, families, communities, uh, the financial cost is huge. I mean, just look around the corner. You have a medical center, a cancer center, a heart hospital, and so on. You can see what the economical consequences are. Our hospital buildings are better than the casinos in Las Vegas because they make more money. 
and by a, a similar method, by basically cheating the public. Yes, they do some good. Yes, in, uh, casinos are enter entertaining. But by and large, you go there and lose. And when you go to a hospital with chronic diseases, you go and lose. And they don't give you what you want. You go to a casino, you want the money. You don't get it. You go to a hospital, you want your health. You do not get it. But, you know, I mean, these are major, major billion-dollar uh, businesses. And then you look at uh, our country and trying to pay for the health care of an entire nation. It's, uh, it's on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has uh, gone a long way to at least opening some possibilities. But, you know, we have a huge problem. And these economic problems, they put us in, a, in an unfavorable position in terms of international um, finances. Uh, we borrow our money from uh, China to pay for our health care system. The health care system, the health industry is the only segment of our economy that's growing in the United States. And the reason it's growing is because we can borrow the money from China to pay for all of this sickness and, quote, care for this uh, dietary disease, these food poisoning illnesses. And then the last thing in terms of harm is our military. I mean, it's probably, no, that's not the last thing, but let's go on to the next to the last thing, the military. And the military, uh, they're disadvantaged. Uh, they're fighting all over the world, our military, and we've got uh, overweight, sickly young men and women trying to defend the United States. And half the people in the military are overweight. And they're thinking about their constipated bowels and their indigestion and their arthritic pains rather than focusing on the job they have to do. So it impairs us uh, militarily, uh, this diet does, and puts it at the United States at great risk. And then the last thing, and, and probably the most important thing, at least from my viewpoint, my viewpoint these days, is the uh, costs on the environment of food. You've probably heard that uh, livestock, meat, dairy, eggs, fish, you know, chicken, etc. Livestock is connected to, causal, causally connected to, over half the greenhouse gas production in the world. So it's devastating to our atmosphere. It's uh, number one or two polluter of the environment. Results in it's the greatest cause of deforestation on the planet is uh, opening up the uh, forest to graze cattle. And you compare these environmental costs to say the environmental costs of growing tobacco. Nothing. I mean, you know, tobacco production will actually decrease greenhouse gases. Poppy for heroin, uh, potatoes or rye for alcohol. Excuse me, the environmental impact of these other devastating habits, and they are, I'm not trying to minimize them. I'm just trying to put them in comparison to food. Uh, they don't even compare. Uh, food is so far ahead at its destruction all the way from the child to the entire planet. It isn't even in the same category as alcohol, heroin, tobacco, etc. You name the bad habit. Food is so far ahead in terms of its destruction, devastation, and what needs to be fixed. Absolutely. And it's really amazing what this diet can do, not only for people and their health, but also for environmental reasons, like you mentioned, or other people who are doing it, say, for animal purposes. It's a win-win-win situation. It's really amazing, this package that comes with it. Um, the next question I wanted to ask you, Dr. McDougall, is what do you think about salt-free diets? Um, I know you like to recommend a little bit of salt with yeah. the starch, but I'm really curious to see what you have to say about that. 
Well, I was raised uh, to prescribe a salt-free diet. That's basically the only thing I was taught in medical school and in my residency about diet is you had low-sodium diet. Uh, there was essentially nothing else on the order sheet except for regular or low-sodium diet. So that's uh, the extent of my nutritional education from my, uh, my training. And, of course, that sticks with you. And uh, there are reasons for a low-salt diet, uh, particularly if you take people with severe hypertension, uh, certain terms of kidney disease, you can put them on something called the Kempner diet, which is a diet of rice and fruit and sugar and juices. And it's uh, Dr. Kempner from Duke University felt that the low-sodium aspect was most crucial. I don't deny in any way that he's right. And these, fair, are, are, these are approaches for the nearly dead the nearly dead people, and which I run into on occasion, and I do use that kind of diet. But for the average person, uh, I believe that uh, low-salt diets are not only not necessary, but uh, disadvantageous. But I'll leave it open for discussion for people who feel otherwise. I do understand their viewpoint. Uh, I don't hold that viewpoint uh, in my practice for a couple of reasons. If you read the New York Times from uh, last week was today the 28th, so it's to be the 20, 27th or 21st. The editorial in the New York Times, you'll find an editorial about low-salt diets and how <clears throat> it was recently report, uh, reported that they was in, the, I believe, the New England Journal of Medicine, that low-salt diets are actually hazardous to health and that people should be consuming between 3,000 and 6,000 milligrams of sodium a day. Now, very high-salt diets, let's just say that you know, you can run into problems, and that may be true or may not. But let's just talk about a reasonable sodium intake of three to six thousand milligrams a day, which fits into what Americans now eat, and uh, is a little higher than we uh, serve at our programs. Well, uh, this kind of sodium intake uh, may be advantageous. You may predict it to be advantageous because we are seekers of salt. You see, we have these desires. Uh, the tip of the tongue tastes with pleasure, sodium, salt, minerals. And uh, these desires we have, like the desire for sweet and salt and nice smells and uh, <laughs> nice visual sights and so on. I mean, you like to look at flowers, not slaughterhouses. I mean, there are all these, all these senses with, that we have that are rewarded by things that are good to us. And salt is a rewarding sense. So I don't think nature made a mistake. By making us salt seekers. I think when we deny that uh, desire to seek salt uh, and you're on a very, very low salt diet, you have to make some cardiovascular metabolic adjustments that may be disadvantageous to the body and may increase this risk of heart disease and death. These are very complicated discussions that I could go through superficially and not with the expertise that other people could, but just let me lay it open as that's what the research says is there are actually metabolic explanations as to why severe salt deprivation would cause uh, the body to uh, to go into a survival mode and some of the effects that are caused may be disadvantageous. Now, all that said, and my believing that a little sodium uh, uh, would not be harmful and could actually be helpful and telling you that uh, not just a little bit of the scientific literature, but I believe the majority supports that point of view. Uh, two things I want to say. One is that our program, we serve a low-sodium meal plan uh, in the sense that we don't add much salt 
we add maybe a little soy sauce. And so I would guess that our intake of sodium is probably 1,000 milligrams at most a day for participants. It can be focused lower, but it's about 1,000 milligrams. And then we put a salt shaker on the table. And not many people use the salt shaker, but just say they do. If they put a half a teaspoon of salt on their food, they just brought it up to 2,000 milligrams of sodium, which is considered a low-salt diet if you end up in the intensive care unit or the cardiac care unit. You're put on a low-sodium diet or a low-salt diet, which is 2,000 milligrams of sodium. So we even at 2,000 milligrams of sodium, I fall below what the New York Times and the New England Journal of Medicine suggested at three to 6,000 milligrams. But fine, the important thing is that I've got to get people to eat the food. And the biggest detraction to a healthy diet, a vegetarian, a starch-based, uh, a diet without traditional foods like bacon and ham and cheese, uh, the uh, major obstacle is that people find it bland. And the reason they find it bland is because of the lack of sodium. It's just like if I fed them pork or chicken or cheese without any salt. You can't get people to eat saltless cheese. They, they absolutely won't eat it. I tried when I was a resident on the kidney wards. Uh, you wouldn't feed somebody boiled chicken or boiled beef or even, even cooked over a grill. They'd find it unappealing unless they added a load of salt to it. And they made ham or bacon or steak with a, you know, a 16th of an inch of salt covering each side of the steak. Or they put sauces that contain salt, like A1 steak sauce and soy sauce and whatever. Uh, salt is crucial to people's enjoyment. Now, you can't adjust to the amount of sodium in the diet. But I, I find that uh, just because of of years of experience, not because of any effort. I never made an effort to eat a low salt diet. It's just my exposure has been low salt. Uh, that, you know, I find 1,000 milligrams of sodium more than enough, and 2,000 is too much for me, I would guess, based on my palate. But I could easily bump it up uh, by adding a little salt. It'd take me a couple of weeks to bump up to a new level. And likewise, if you want to uh, have a lower sodium intake, you can bump down in your adaptation in about two weeks. Uh, what's good or not good for you? I think that, uh, that I've got it right. I think that for most people, uh, almost everybody, adding a little salt uh, puts the body under less distress, is a proper reward, and no question about it. It makes, uh, it makes those potatoes and that rice and those beans go down so much better. And so I would suggest a little salt. And we use, use a little simple sugar and a little spice just to get people to eat the food. That's the main reason. Right. And 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams like you were talking about, that's not a whole lot compared to the standard way of eating. Well, 2,000 milligrams is called a low-sodium diet in the intensive care unit in a hospital. That gives you some idea. You can drop the sodium intake in food if you do it with careful effort down to, say, 100 milligrams. Typical diets uh, with no salt added, carefully avoiding all salt, are about uh, three to 500 milligrams. Our diet, as I say, in the clinic is probably 1,000 milligrams at most. You can bump it down to 500. And uh, if you, a half teaspoon of salt is 1,100 milligrams. So you just added another 1,000 milligrams. So you're up to 2,000 milligram diet with a half teaspoon of salt. Typical American eats uh, three to 5,000. Asians, on high salt diets like Korean soldiers back in the 50s were studied, 
they had about 1100 milligrams of salt. So, you know, yeah, sodium, let's see, it was sodium, probably 1100 milligrams. They used to eat a lot of salt. There have been various populations in Japan and Asia that have really been on very high salt diets. And I believe it's 11 to 1500 milligrams of sodium that we're talking about. I could be correct. Anyway, they're very high salt diets and people did well. Uh, I don't, I know for one thing for sure, salt is a misguided effort on the part of hospitals and doctors, but that's all they know is they focus on the salt, but what they should focus on is the, is the packages the salt comes in. It's, it's the things that deliver the salt to people. That's why they're sick. It's not the salt, it's the bacon. It's not the pig, it's the, I mean, it's the pig, not the salt that's making them sick in the bacon. So if you, uh, you get most of your salt, 80% of your salt is called non-discretionary. In other words, you have no choice. It comes in your packaged foods, particularly salami, other lunch meats, uh, packaged meats, uh, all cheese is just loaded with sodium. So that's non-discretionary sodium. If you get that out of the diet and you just use discretionary sodium, which is what you put a little on the surface of the food, you'd be way, way ahead. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so you've done a lot of research with multiple sclerosis. I'm very interested to hear what you have found so far, if diet it can be the only treatment for it or if you recommend anything with the addition with the starch-based diet. I have done a lot of work on this, uh, and I've worked on it for over 25 years. But more so lately, by doing a study with Oregon Health and Science University since 2008, we started this. Uh, and if you want to read about the study and the results, it's in my July 2014 newsletter on my website, drmcdougall.com. But uh, there are two, two things that you mentioned that always have to be considered in any disease, whether it be heart disease or diabetes or osteoporosis or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis. What, what, what you have to do is you have to evaluate what standard therapy does on its own merits. In other words, uh, heart surgery for chronic coronary artery disease does not save lives. So on its own merits, it doesn't work. Now, if you have heart surgery, you still have to eat a good diet. It's not like you get out of get eating a good diet if you have heart surgery. So everybody should be eating a good diet regardless of what other therapies they choose. And they should choose other therapies based on their own merits. Uh, type 2 diabetes, treating with aggressively with insulin and diabetic pills, kills. It kills people, increases the risk of heart disease, increases the risk of overall mortality, low sugar reactions, uh, dangerously low sugar reactions. Uh, the, this intensive therapy, without any question, without any debate, every doctor should know this and does if they're bred, uh, knows intensive diabetic therapy with medication kills. So why would you accept it? You know, I mean, just even if you're still eating bacon and brie, why would you take pills that make you sick? Uh, the same thing with multiple sclerosis. There have been several studies done on MS. Uh, almost all of them have been paid for by the companies that make the drugs. And by the way, the drugs, just the medication costs on average $55,000 a year just for the drug. Not the needles, you know, not the, not the syringes, not the sponges, not the doctor's visits. Uh, just the drugs alone cost 55 grand just for the medication. So the drug companies have done several studies uh, trying to prove the benefits of drugs and the results have not been flattering. Uh, let's just say with uh, careful methodology and design and efforts, they've been, shown, they've been able to show small benefits in terms of their drugs. 
But a recent independent study published in JAMA, I believe it was uh, 2011, but it's easy to find. Just look at uh, you know my research and we'll point it out. Uh, long-term, the only long-term independently done study of MS patients show that it doesn't work. These drugs do not reduce disability in patients. And uh, plain and simple, uh, you have to evaluate them on their own merits. If you want to take something that doesn't work, I realize your insurance company has to pay for it, that some of these drugs can be killers themselves. Um, they have some very toxic adverse effects, some of the drugs do. If you want to take that, take it on its own merits, whether you change your diet or not. So uh, please do your evaluation independently and uh, choose the therapies that work best for you. <coughs> now, when it comes to diet and multiple sclerosis, I'll give you the summary, and if you want to go into more details, we can. Essentially, multiple sclerosis is a disease of food poisoning of the Western diet. That's clear, clearly shown by history, uh, by geography. In other words, this is a disease only of Western countries where they eat the Western diet. Uh, experimental animal studies show this, uh, but particularly the work of Roy Swank who was the former head of Oregon Health and Science University Neurology Department. He did 50 years of research on 5,000 people showing that this disease uh, not only was caused by the Western diet, but if you stop the Western diet, in other words, saturated fat animal foods, that you'll slower stop the progression of the disease in almost all cases, dramatic benefits. So we took Dr. Swank's work, which was observational study published in major medical journals, on his patients over 30 year period of time. Uh, we took uh, his founding work and we did a randomized single blind, in other words, Raider blind, uh, control trial at Oregon Health and Science University. And we found some wonderful things, very dramatic things, uh, things that should cause every neurologist to prescribe a healthy diet to a patient, whether or not they prescribe interferon beta or copaxone or any of the other drugs that they believe work regardless of what the science says. They should still be giving the patient a healthy diet encouragement to eat well because there's no adverse effects. And our study shows several things that are important. One, it shows people will do it. Our compliance rate was huge. At the end of a year, in other words, permanently what happened was uh, the control group ate a diet of 40% fat. The intervention group, those on the diet, those we taught to eat this way, their overall fat take dropped to 15%. And that was maintained for a year. So permanent, permanent changes in diet. Uh, we estimate that 80% of the people that we taught this diet followed 100% of the time for a year. So permanent changes. So compliance we've shown. Uh, we also showed about uh, 10 to 20 pound permanent weight loss depending on how you look at the data, 10 to 20 pound permanent weight loss. These people didn't come for weight loss. They came for multiple sclerosis over a year. We showed a 20 point drop in total cholesterol and similar drops in other lipids. Maintained over a year. I mean, this, this is phenomenal results. And then one of the things about multiple sclerosis that is important to patients and neurologists is their major complaint is fatigue. The MS Society says 80% of the people with MS suffer from significant fatigue, and it's often the reason they quit their, their vocation in life, because they're so fatigued. We showed by three separate study methods 
that fatigue was instantaneously relieved in these people with a change in diet, and that fatigue improvement was maintained for a year. Now, we didn't show some things we planned on showing, some very important things, and there are reasons for that. We didn't show changes in the lesions in the brain based on MRI. We didn't show changes in disability. The major reason for that was because of the randomization process. We only had 60 people to randomize. And just by uh, the luck of the draw, just by the roll of the dice, just like when you go to Las Vegas and you know you throw the dice on the tables 30 times or 60 times. Some days you wake, walk away a winner, some days you don't. Well, in our case, what happened is because of the roll of the dice, we heavily loaded the diet group with very sick people. The disease burden was huge. In our diet group and the control group, the disease burden was very low. They were very healthy. Just the luck of the draw. So we knew as soon as we completed randomization that we would not show the results we wanted. Still, we completed the experiment. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it could be done again. I, hopefully, we've inspired people to continue our research, Dr. Swank's research, because not only is it safe, to do this, but it overall improves the health of these people dramatically. And I believe Dr. Swank's uh, conclusions will be confirmed that this disease is stopped by a healthy diet. However, we have more work to do to prove it. But why in the world would a neuro neurologist not recommend to this to his or her patients? Because it does no harm, the first rule in medicine. It improves their overall health, it improves the way they feel dramatically. Why not? I mean, there's just no, the only reason they don't, neurologists don't, and universally they do not. I mean, you would have to search among tens of thousands of neurologists to find an exception. The reason they don't is because they weren't trained this way. That's right. They receive absolutely no education on diet. Uh, number two, uh, almost all of meat, the diet gives you MS and makes the attacks occur, the Western diet. So they can't see over their dinner plates. There's a lot of ego involved. You know, when it comes to medicine and medical care and all the things we've been doing in the past, when you go on to another approach, you have to admit to yourself and to your patients that your prior practice was uh, destructive in their lives. It uh, destroyed their bank accounts if they paid for it, but they don't. You imagine how fast uh, somebody's savings would go if you were paying for a drug that was $55,000 a year. Uh, it destroyed their family life. It destroys their productivity. It destroyed everything about them. In addition to allowing the MS to go on, they were constipated and fat and diabetic and all the things that that bad diet, which the doctor may have now come to realize was bad teaching, was very destructive teaching. The doctor has to admit to the patient and his or herself, hey, I screwed up. I hurt my patients for the last 30 years. I apologize. I will go on to doing the right thing. Believe it or not, few doctors can do that. Uh, the natural human ego and our desire to preserve our self-images is such that it's hard for somebody to say, okay, I admit, I, I, I will not sin anymore, Father. I'm on to better things. They can't do it. I'm curious, are there any uh, drugs or supplements you do recommend? Because you are a board-certified medical doctor. Yeah. I, I do. I recommend uh, Oh, a few, a handful of drugs. Uh, the ones I recommend are listed in my May 2012 newsletter. It tells you all how I stop medication and uh, what medications I do use, like I use thyroid supplementation, 
for people who are hypothyroid. I use painkillers, uh, aspirin being one of the big ones for people. I uh, take care of heart patients with a little bit of aspirin and a little bit of statin, people who've had a previous history of heart disease. Uh, I use blood pressure pills when the blood pressure gets to be what I would consider moderate to severe. I use insulin in type 1 and type 1.5 diabetics. Not in type 2, but uh, that's probably hard to define to your listeners what the difference is. But just do understand there are circumstances where I will use insulin in diabetics. Uh, they need it. Uh, there are occasional other medications that I will use, but that's that's pretty much it. It's a little insulin, a little uh, diuretic called chlorothaladone for blood pressure, a little statin medication, a little aspirin, a little thyroid supplement. I use hormone replacement therapy. For women on occasion, and uh, not not much else. Uh, there are always exceptions, but not much else. Right. Um, so uh, this is my last question, and I really want to give you the spotlight on this one. Um, I'm a dietetic student, and I'm seeing firsthand what they're recommending to America to to patients, and it's it's not it's not good. Um, I really want to ask you what, in your opinion, through all your years of experience, what needs to be done to, to see this health revolution that we really need? Well, we just need to change the form of payment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all we need to do. This uh, week, this past week, again, this is uh, August 28th. So in the past week, uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine published uh, two papers. Uh, and these papers are, uh, one, a study of the various data, and the other is the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendation. The U.S. Preventative Service Task Force <clears throat> just put out a recommendation that uh, doctors, the medical community, put effort into intensive dietary and lifestyle change. This is a grade grade B recommendation that we focus our. This is a, this is paramount that we focus our efforts on intensive, which is what I do. I mean, I'm one of the few people in the country who does this, intensive dietary and lifestyle recommendations. Now, this has further meaning that uh, hopefully we'll be able to address as time goes on. When the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force puts out a grade B or A recommendation, this is a grade B, then the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, has to recommend this for its insured. Okay, so what this means is uh, the major insurance controller in the country, the, the Affordable Care Act, the Ob Obamacare, uh, now is required because of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendation for intensive diet lifestyle, which is, by the way, what dietitians would be the key role in doing. <clears throat> now must recommend this for doctors to do which you would think followed would now require, I would think, again, we have to explore all this, but I would think would require insurance companies to pay, you know, because other treatments get C and D recommendations. In other words, they're useless, like the drug therapies and heart surgeries. And, you know, they get horrible recommendations from the U.S. Presentative Service Task Force, very uh, screening tests that are done. And still, the insurance companies pay for these things. And the Affordable Care Act says no, not for C's and D recommendations, but for A and B. 
So I don't know what's going to follow, but what should follow because of the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force recommendation this week and because of the way the Affordable Care Act is laid out, what should follow is uh, insurance companies and uh, major self-insured businesses like Whole Foods Market, Ford Motor Company, and General Motors, and IBM, and Apple. I assume they're all self-insured. But anyway, regardless, you get the point. Uh, these companies now should not only feel that they're allowed to, but should feel required to offer their participants, their employees, their insured, the uh, opportunity and be paid for by the employer and insurance company, the opportunity to be involved in intensive dietary and lifestyle changes. I mean, all that should follow. It just should be a simple step-by-step, uh, -step, just cascade into what you just asked, which is how do we as dietitians uh, get involved? How do medical doctors uh, who understand that people are suffering from food poisoning, how do they cure their patients? How do we empty the hospitals of these dietary diseases? Well, you get it paid for to do the right. You have to get paid to do the right thing. We all have to put shoes on the baby, you know, pay for tuition for our kids, keep our uh, cars running, our houses warm, et cetera. I mean, it's just the way it is. It ain't going to change. But if you can do that by doing the right thing, then everything should work out. And I have told dietitians all the way from Mumbai, India, to uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, and in between, I have told dietitians, you are the most valuable arm, and I've told them for the last 40 years, over and over again, you're the most valuable arm of the medical business. But though you're also the most neglected, you're the most abused. There is a bullying system that goes on in the medical business. And the bullies are the doctors. And the people who get bullied are the nurses and the dietitians and the other lesser folks. That needs to be changed. And one way to change it would be to change the financial reward system. Don't give the bullies any money anymore. <laughs> give, them to the, give them to the people who really make a difference. Don't give them to the heart surgeon who slits a chest open for 100 grand. Or, uh, you know, or whatever. You get the point. These, these, uh, uh, these prescribers of death, disability, destruction, and false hope, those prescribing the drugs and surgeries for chronic disease, need to stop getting the money. Just don't give them the money anymore. And then everything will change. And those who do good things, which, by the way, the Affordable Care Act focuses on if you do the right thing you save medicare money shared savings then you know you get paid there are a whole bunch of programs in the affordable care act that allow us to do the right thing all right so you do the right thing and you get paid for it and we just flip flop the whole system i would love to see the dietitian be the first the first person who consoles every patient with, with chronic problems not not acute you know not lacerations broken bones etc infections but with chronic diseases due to food poisoning, the, uh, the fixer of food poisoning should be the first one to see the patient. And that fixer of food poisoning is the dietitian or, or, or allied uh, thinking people. Uh, will it happen? I think so. I know I, I'm encouraged every day. I uh, have to say there have been times in my life when I, I felt there's just no way, like with the resurgence of Atkins and the low-carb diets and now... 
Wee Billy and Grain Brain and the other knockoffs of the Atkins diet. There are days in the cover of Time magazine telling us to eat butter. There are days when it feels like somebody just punched me in the stomach. And uh, that we'll never, never have an opportunity to fix this. And there are other days when I realize uh, that we're making progress. There are more of us starchivores, vegetarians, vegans, environmentalists, animal rights people. There are more of us every day. And uh, once you see this, you know, nobody changes you back. Once you understand the environmental impact or the abuse in the farm yard that goes on, once you've seen that, once you see the suffering in people and why they're sick and how it's so simple to fix them by feeding them rice, corn, and potatoes, you know, once a, uh, you know, once an average lay person or a medical doctor or a dietitian or a politician sees this, you can't, you can't close your eyes again. I mean, it's not like, oh, oh, no, 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 I misread it. I, I should go out there and uh, kill myself a cow and slice it up and eat it. Oh, I'll cook, maybe I'll cook it. You know, you never get back into that type of thinking once your eyes are open. So more and more people's eyes are being open, but unfortunately, the money just outpaces the truth. Uh, they have the money, we have the truth and success. Uh, will we catch up before it's too late? I, can't, I still can't answer that question, but I can tell you one thing, uh, yourself, your listeners, myself, my team, and a whole bunch of other people uh, in the United States and across the world are not going to give up. The stakes are too great. Uh, we're talking about uh, saving the planets, uh, making this a worthwhile place for human beings and animals to live. We can't do that, but we can't, uh, we can't uh, pause. Uh, there's no room to pause and say, well, you know, I've done my share. I'm not going to do any more. You know, it's just no sense. You know what? None of us can do that. We just have to keep every day getting up and asking, what can we do today? Yeah, I realize it wasn't a good day. The Wall Street Journal had an article by Nina that says that eating animals is good. Or uh, the New York Times had another article that says that saturated fat and won't give you heart disease. You know, there are those days, but it, does, it doesn't matter. You just kind of got to, okay. You know, keep going because the truth's the truth, and uh, the liars will catch it. The liars, the polluters, the cheaters will be caught because of the um, technology information that we have these days. Unless they can shut down the, uh, you know, our computers and uh, our, our our devices and our access to free information, we will beat them. That's that's really hopeful to hear. And uh, what I try to encourage people to do is you know, to speak up about this any way they can. If they're interested in health, to pursue a career in dietetics or to even make sim simple YouTube videos of just showing what you eat in a day and just getting more and more people on board and hopefully surely but slowly but surely change change the world one person at a time. Yeah, you do that. Uh, it's real important that you also look the part. You know, you have to even though that you're concerned about animal rights and the environment, you can't be a fat vegan. That's right. And, and that's no offense attended, intended, but you have to look the part. Uh, you have to, you know, like Bill Clinton does. I mean, Bill Clinton went from a, a pudgy, sickly young man to somebody you see these days who is strong, vibrant, handsome, desirable, attractive, whatever word you want to use. Uh, James Cameron, the guy who did Avatar. I saw him a couple of nights ago on TV. And I also saw him in person about a year ago, and he was pudgy. You know, not, not greatly so. You'd probably never identify him as being overweight or unhealthy in any way. But you look at that man's uh, 
that man's uh, uh, energy. You look at uh, the, the extra trimness, the extra uh, circulation, whatever you want, whatever it is in detail or just an effect of radiation of health. You look at him uh, on, the, on the, the talk shows now promoting his new 3D movie of his deep dive. You see a whole new man. Uh, so there's this, uh, this radiance of good health that's only possible when you stop the food poisoning. Uh, you can trim down, you can eat less, you can uh, go on the Atkins diet. Uh, you can do a lot of things to lose weight. You can take chemotherapy. You can have gastric bypass surgery. I mean, there's a lot of ways to lose weight, but you won't look good. I mean, you'll there'll still be that, that uh, pudgy, uh, unhealthy, uh, cyanotic, greasy appearance you'll still carry to people. That, that energy you radiate won't be there in terms of your personal appearance, your attractiveness, until you stop the food poisoning. Anyway, uh, that got a little carry away. Yes, you need to uh, radiate uh, this good health uh, to people around you by eating well. Yeah, in your churches, you need to sit down with uh, fellow members at your PTA, at your Kiwanis Club, uh, in, in your business, uh, your company, uh, your employer or employee. You need to just talk about this incessantly, uh, hopefully not offending too many people, but one way or another, either getting in their face or just looking great, you need to keep this message going. Everybody can. In fact, I, I know this is going to have to come from the bottom up. It is just not going to come from the top down because there's too much at stake politically. I've been told recently, because I've had the ideas we've discussed right now, I've been talking to people in Washington about. And uh, the, the response is, John, look, this is just politically too hot a topic. You have an entire political party representing industry that is not happy about you telling the drug industry, the vitamin pill industry, the uh, beef industry, the fish industry, the dairy industry, that uh, they can't do business anymore because they're killing people. That does not fit favorably in politics, John. And until you change politics, you aren't going to be able to talk about it. And it is true. I'm not able to talk about it because it's politically uh, unfavorable. Uh, people lose elections because of this attitude. And being associated with me is uh, is not a good thing for somebody who wants to win elections. So, uh, or these ideas. Uh, being vegetarian is actually a dirty word. You've seen that happen with the Clintons recently. Uh, a guy named Mark Hyman came out and claimed that he was Clinton's doctor and he's trying to get Clinton off his vegan diet. This is all political BS. Uh, Chelsea Clinton declaring she's not or never has been vegan. That's... You know, from what I've read and heard, that's all BS. Uh, Hillary wants to win. She wants to win in 2016. You can't be associated with vegans or vegetarians to get the political support you need to win the election. And I agree. I agree. I, You know, if you want Hillary to win, then don't use the word vegan next to the Clinton family. It's just the way it is. It's not right. It's not fair. But it is fact. So they're distancing themselves from a diet that saved Bill Clinton's life. And was uh, uh, Chelsea Clinton's uh, moral compass for many years. I don't think Hillary's ever kind of got it yet, but uh, and it's just so politically charged. Uh, anyway, they maybe politics will change. My attorneys in Washington say, John, maybe next year, maybe next year we can team up with you because they know how important it is without us losing our uh, lobbying business. It happens to be in this case. 
without us losing our political connections, uh, which is what they're are concerned about if they take a strong attitude about the things that we discussed. And you can understand it. It's just business. Absolutely. Yeah. But nonetheless, still getting the word out is going to do so much good. And I thank you so much because you have done so much for this movement as well. I figure I got another 10 to 20 years at it unless, uh, unless the cards have it differently. But yeah, we have, uh, we have a task. As you say, everybody has to do it. You have to do it. All your listeners have to do it. You need to take this uh, YouTube video if you liked it, share it with everybody you know, and the rest of the work we're doing. Keep sticking it in their face. It takes more than one time for people to learn things. Just because they don't get it the first time, just because you get a negative reaction the first time, you can't stop. Absolutely. Now, Dr. McDougall, where can people find you and connect with you? Well, the only place to find me is uh, on our website, which has uh, an abundance. And abundance is... Uh, is an underestimation of what I'm telling you about, an abundance of free helpful material, free 12-day program, free 500 recipes, free discussions about the Clintons and a couple of newsletters ago about our study, last newsletter about high blood pressure treatment, et cetera, low-salt diets. Uh, hundreds of articles that I've written over the years are free there. Hundreds of recipes are free. A discussion board that's free. Everything that I think you need, I'm sure, costing you not a penny, no exaggeration, no gimmicks. Everything you want is there, and it's that's at uh, www.drmcdougall.com, D-R-M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L.com. And there are also some things that you may find worthwhile to pay for, like we have advanced study weekends that are coming up, that we have 10-day live-in programs where I'm the doctor. I get to take care of about 50 patients each program. We have vacations to Costa Rica and Hawaii where we give people an opportunity to socialize with other good-minded people. So we also have a business, uh, no question about it. Uh, this is the way I support myself in selling what I believe to be good information. But we also make the opportunity available for those who don't have the time, the money, or the willingness to spend either. Uh, it's all free on the website, drmcdougall.com, D-R-M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L.com. It's all there, all free. Dozens of videos, you name it, it's there. It'll spend you, it'll take you weeks to go through, months to go through the materials that I have there. No question about it, free. Absolutely. And I think I speak for the whole plant based community. I am so thankful for all the free material you put up and all the lectures up online. I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed to have you as a doctor, Dr. McDougall. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed doing it. Uh, giving is the greatest thing in life. You know, you heard it, giving's greater than receiving and all kinds of similar comments because it is. Uh, Mary and I and the team have an opportunity to give a lot and we get a lot of thanks back and that's what feels good. And we're changing the world. No question about it. We're changing the world. But we do need some more help. <laughs> I'll tell you what the problem is. I've kind of figured it out. You know, I keep focusing on what the problems are. It's not that we don't have good leaders in the sense of denomination. Esselstyn and Campbell, you know, other folks out there. We have good leaders. The problem we have is we don't have an army. We have no army. You see, if the things that I said or you say or other people who know the truth, if, if there was somebody to listen and to take action, then we'd beat them overnight. But we have no army. Uh, you look around at the people who are following our message. They're non-existent. You have an army when it comes to civil rights. To racial issues. It wasn't easy to build. 
But we have an army there, a uh, caucus of people who have similar interests. You have a small army in the environmental movement, not big. Anyway, we need an army. I don't know how we're going to get it so that when we speak, when I speak, when S speaks or somebody else speaks or O or any of our political leaders speak in terms of the truth, that our army stands up and says, yes, that's what we want done. And we're going to do it by whatever means are required. Riots in the street, changes in the voting booth, whatever. We don't have no army. We have no army. Just go to Whole Foods or Safeway and walk down the grocery aisles. The army is still feasting off the cows and pigs. Yeah, anyway, that's just a whole other subject. Well, it's it's growing and it's hopeful, Dr. McDougall. So um, again, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's always a pleasure to have you on.